0: Welcome to the Lead More podcast. I'm your host, John T. Meyer. Well, if you came here for episode 100, I'm going to make you wait two more weeks. We're doing something a little bit different. I'm not quite ready with what I want to do for episode 100. I'm still working through my thoughts and ideas, or doing some editing, trying to best look back on 100 episodes, but also celebrate the goal and the purpose of the Lead More podcast. So instead, we're doing something I have never done, which is reposting an episode. But I have a little uh, context I want to add before we do that. So we're going to air episode one of the Lead More podcast. Episode one, if you might remember, uh, is with Governor Dennis Dugard, former 32nd governor of South Dakota. This aired on June 9th of 2020. So it's over two years old. And why I want to share this one is it just seems like a nice you know, bookmark from episode one to 100 But also, the reason I want to share this, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in the last two years, specifically who have said, I want to start a podcast, how do I do it? Now, a handful of these people have started one, and I'm so proud of them. But, you know, whether it be a podcast and they're asking about what microphone should I use, what software should I record on, where should I post it, where should I host it? It could be that, but it could be starting a blog, starting a business starting a new workout routine, moving, we are often paralyzed, whether it be by choice or paralyzed by imposter syndrome or something is holding us back from starting. And that's why I want to post episode one of the Lead More podcast, because it's not very good. Uh, I'm happy to uh, admit that, and I'm honest about it. Uh, Go ahead and listen to some of it, whether you listen to the whole thing or part of it. The content is good. Governor Dugard is great. I'm not taking anything away from him, but I'm not great. My microphone sounds terrible. Sounds like I'm in like a tin can. My questions are sort of, they drag on. They're not very clear or specific. We had some technical issues. If you watch the video on the YouTube feed, um, I look like whitewashed like a ghost. Governor Dugard's way too close to the camera. It's, It's a little bit rough, but... I also always say, if you go back and watch you know, the first episodes that Gary Vaynerchuk did of his Wine Library TV show, he always jokes that he looks like he's a terrorist in a cave. It looks so poorly. Even I've seen early episodes of Oprah on The Oprah Show, right? Oprah is one of the best ever, the pro's pro. She's pretty rough in the early days. And so I share this because we've come a long way. Thanks to my good friend, Nate, our production is better. Our sound is better. Our microphones are better. My questions are better. But also, I'll say that in the spirit of better every day, we're not done yet. We still have more work to do. We still have improvements to make. And there's always, always, always room to get better every single day. So in this journey of 100 episodes, we continue to you know, sharpen our knife and refine things. We take feedback. We improve. We upgrade. Uh, but it's always important to remember where you came from. And re- remember how far you've come. You know, the journey is still up, upwards and, and, and climbing, but also to stop, look back, to celebrate your wins, to recognize how far you've come and how much you've improved. And if you listen to episode one for just five minutes, you will realize we have improved. So this is actually still one of the most popular episodes. Uh, Governor Dugard, I think obviously he as the guest was a draw, but also me announcing, hey, I have a podcast. A lot of people listen to that first episode. So in some ways, I'll admit, you know, being great at the beginning is helpful because you can hook people. Uh, Maybe some people thought, oh, this audio is terrible, and they dropped out. But my point is don't let that hold you back. You have to start. You have to take the first step. You have to leap. And if those people don't want to listen, they probably weren't your listeners anyway. So I've had 100 episodes. People have found other opportunities and chances to jump in to listen to an episode to decide if they like this show or not. And so don't let that first step hold you back. You have something inside of you that you want to create, something you want to build, an idea of something you want to start, go. right? Just go. Because now I just put my head down. I kept going. We got a little bit better every time. And you finally put your head up and you say, wow, we've done 100 episodes of this. How do we do that? I don't know if you've seen this tweet or the stat before, but if you get to episode six of a podcast, if you start a podcast and get to episode six, you are already in, I think it's the top 12 percentile of people because so many people quit before that. They start a podcast and do it three times. If you get past episode 20, you're in like the top two percentile of podcast. So here at episode 100, we are definitely in the 1 percent Now, again, we have room to grow, but just sticking it out, putting your head down, continuing to ship and get better is the way to go. So that's my rant. That's sort of uh, what I wanted to share today, both as a key point and lesson, but also take a listen to this. Uh, You might laugh, but also recognize that we've come a long way. And in two weeks from today, you will hear episode 100. As always, friends, take care. Thanks for listening. And here is Governor Dennis Dugard. Hey everyone, welcome to the Lead More Podcast. I'm your host, John T. Meyer, and I'm so excited to bring this brand new show to you. Now, I believe that the world needs more leaders, now more than ever before. So I came up with this idea for the Lead More Podcast to go back and look at and study and get to know the best leaders of the past and the present, so that we can create more leaders for the future. In this inaugural episode, I got a chance to sit down and interview the 32nd governor of our great state of South Dakota, Mr. Dennis Dugard. We talked about what do you look for and how do you spot upcoming leaders. I asked him how he got his start as a leader and if he ever saw himself being a politician. And We talked about how to lead during a time of crisis, which is on everyone's mind today. You're also going to hear what book he just read and what he says is the best perk. Of being the governor of South Dakota. So please join me in listening to the very first episode of the Lead More podcast, where I, John T. Meyer, sit down with Governor Dennis Dugard. Have a listen. Well, welcome everyone to the show. I'm so excited for today's episode. We have one of the great leaders. He was a business development person in, in a nonprofit, an executive director, a state senator, a lieutenant governor, and then, of course, we all know him as South Dakota's 32nd governor. Mr. Dennis Dugard. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. All right. Well, I have to tell you first, the premise of the show originally started with the idea of asking people who are there, who's their Mount Rushmore of leadership, right? Just like people will debate their Mount Rushmore of baseball or, you know, football greats or South Dakotans. And what I can say when I asked South Dakotans that question, kind of as I started to come up with this idea for the show, your name came up very frequently as being on people's Mount Rushmore of leadership, so I'm honored to have you here today. Uh, and I want to start at the beginning. Um, you know, I think a lot of leaders debate this question of whether leaders are born or if they're made, right? And so, at what age did you maybe? What was your first leadership role, whether it be a job or a school, uh, a class project, or a, uh, When would you first think back to the to remembering when you became a leader? Uh, I would
1: say. Nominally, a leader was, when I was in high school, I was the student body president. Okay, That really wasn't much of a leadership job because, you know, you have all your teachers telling you what to do. It's more sure. following being a leader in name. Uh, I'd say in college, I was the president of my fraternity. And that, at that time, it was a pretty big fraternity. We had about 100. Members and it was very. uh, It was at a time when fraternities were very active at the University of South Dakota. Sure. So it was a a job with a fair amount of responsibility. The uh, traditionally houses would have a house mother who lived in the house and was sort of the uh, matriarch of the boys, college boys. We did not have one, and so the president of the fraternity really was. Responsible for finances, responsible for making sure that the uh, men who lived in the house didn't uh, mistreat it and took care of it and cleaned it and maintained it and hire the cook and do all yeah. those things. I really didn't have much money in college, and I always had to work jobs. And so I said, "I can't do it. I don't have the time because I've got these jobs." And they said, "Well, we will pay you." to oh, wow. be the president of the fraternity, which had not been done before. I said, okay, then I'll do it because <laughs> then I can quit one of my other jobs.
0: Yeah, it was a win-win, that's perfect. Yeah. And then I know you went off to law school and at, at what point did, I don't even know, when did, did, did political ambitions set in at that point or did people, was it later in life that you decided to emerge as a leader in the political realm?
1: It was really later, uh, I majored in government at what is now called political science in most universities. Sure. But mainly because I had some scholarship support there. It's not because I have, oh, this is going to be my, yeah. my path. It was more, I've got to major in something. I don't know what to major in. Okay, I'll take government because, yeah, you'll give me a scholarship. All right. <laughs>
2: but
1: after, after that, of course, you, I reached my junior year in college, and I was looking ahead to my senior year, and I thought, well, what do you do with this degree? You can't really get much of a job with a political science bachelor's degree. So that's when I decided to go to law school, did that. And then it was really uh, quite a bit later. Uh, Linda and I were living on the farm already. We had, we had kids. And I got a call one evening from someone who was recruiting mm-hmm. uh, people to run for the legislature. And so Linda and I talked about it. I talked to uh, the uh, executive director of Children's Home Society, and they were both supportive. And so then I ran for the Senate. And then one thing led to another after that.
0: Yeah, so this is, you know, 1996, 1997. And who thought that, what, a decade later or 14 years later, you'd be governor? I mean, wow. (laughs) not me well that's an interesting point because i think so much of uh uh sort of the the origin of leaders happens when somebody delegates or sort of appoints so so someone called you recognized you as uh you know trustworthy guy uh, uh lots of integrity leadership and and you sort of took the call um and that moment probably changed your life
1: It really did, and I I think that is true of a lot of legislators I know. In fact, I have made many such calls. Sure. uh, Encourage people to run, and I would say I'm successful less than half of the time. Okay. Many people are are willing to lead, but they don't have time. Yeah. Uh, They're they're committed in other areas, or I think there's also a fear of losing. You know, when you're talking about an elective leadership position, no one likes to lose. It's an embarrassment. You spend money and a lot of time, and
0: then don't win. It's it's an ego blow. Yeah, totally. And so, what what are the characteristics like as you find people and make those phone calls? What do you look for in a leader, or even when you were building out, say, your cabinet or your staff? um, What are the characteristics that you identify in someone that you think should could be a great leader? Well, uh, emotional
1: maturity. Uh, people who can control their emotions and, and not stifle them in the sense that they're you know ready to explode because they've been stifling them, but in the sense that they don't get too uh, worked up or jammed up about things that are at the end of the day, not that consequential and uh, or are rather, rather short uh, duration in concern. So, Emotional maturity is important.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: you have to have someone who's a good listener because yeah. the world's complicated. And if I find somebody or I come across someone who's absolutely sure about themselves too much, then I think this person is too insecure to open themselves up to new information. And they are bound to make decisions that are impulsive or not well founded. So you've got to be a good listener. Um, you, gotta like, yeah. Sorry, you've you got to have a workout.
2: Yeah. Sorry, come out
1: there. To set the example too, and live the example. I think people are very disappointed in leaders who portray themselves as one thing, and then when the cameras are off or someone's out of the room, then they betray the fact that they're a little bit different than they portrayed themselves. And if you're not willing to be the same person, 24 uh, seven then maybe you wouldn't be a very good leader.
0: That's a great one. Yeah. So like vulnerability, it sounds like we also, when you talked about being able to admit that you're wrong and, and listening and then know when yeah. it's time to maybe shift, change your mind. Humility.
1: Yeah. You yeah. Gotta
0: be, that's good. You
1: gotta have that humility of, of uh, your own
0: foibles and limitations. So related to that, uh, I'll turn that question to you. We, Uh, Thing that we do here at Lemonly when we hire, we ask people, potential candidates, what's your superpower? Like, what's your, and we define that as sort of what's the one thing you will do better on the team than everyone else? And so I like this question because, you know, as you know, lots of South Dakotans, we're not very good about bragging about ourselves. We have a lot of humility. Uh, So if I were to ask you, what's your superpower as a leader, what would you say that is? I would say I'm a good listener.
1: I think if you talk to people, Uh, who are present in meetings that I lead or uh, in which I participate, they will say I'll often not speak until the end. Uh, Particularly if you're the leader, you really shouldn't betray your leaning on a decision until the end because then people won't be frank with you, especially if they want to be respectful. So generally they'll reflect and support, or often they'll reflect and support what they think you want to hear, and of course that's the worst. Sure, you want to hear their candid opinion so that it can inform yours. So you've got to be a listener, not a speaker.
0: As and I imagine uh, when you're when you're governor of a state, it, that everybody wants to probably agree and say yes. And I agree, and you're and and you're 100 correct. I, I'm sure it's hard to get straight facts sometimes. For people
1: right, it is
0: it is people
1: people want your approval, and so they want to tell you what you want to hear, <laughs> so be a good listener i 'd say to a leader, be a good listener and and wait until the end to make a decision because as soon as you even lean one way, then you 're inclined to discount information that doesn 't support that leaning, so literally try to listen and be deliberate about saying, okay, I'm not going to decide. I'm not going to think about what I think is best yet. I'm going to try and keep an open mind until I must decide and then do so.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, One thing I want to do with the show is try to get a a understanding kind of behind the scenes of how leaders uh, live their life and, and what their routines are and um, so tell me a little bit, and maybe it's changed, maybe it hasn't changed from being governor to being retired. Unpack your, what's your morning routine? Are you, are you a morning person? Do you, do you do the same thing every day? Kind of unpack how you like to plan your day. Um, well, it depends. Uh, lately, I've been doing so, so much outside work that
1: I don't do any exercising in the morning because otherwise
2: I'm too if tired to get do all of work.
1: So, uh, but if I'm in the wintertime, for example, I'd get up and typically start out with exercise, do uh, the treadmill. I don't run anymore because I'm getting too old for the joint, joint pounding. (laughs) So I walk on the treadmill, pretty good pace for 30 minutes or so. And then uh, two or three days a week, I'll lift weights. Nothing nothing to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you can see it. (laughs) Like that. Yeah. you got to, you've got to, Maintain some muscle strength, or when you want to use muscles, you, they won't be there for you. So I do that. and uh, uh, during the, my uh, time in the capitol, uh then I would go into work by eight, seven thirty or eight, I'd get to the capitol. and then the first thing I would do is read. There was always uh, some papers to read, but also lots of mail to read and respond to. And South Dakota is still a small enough state that the governor can respond to people who write. Now, I won't write that letter myself. Someone will draft it for yeah. me, oftentimes subject matter experts. Sure. And uh, they'll draft the letter. I'll, but I'll look at it and say, is it responsive to the question that was asked? You know, I'll read the, the letter and say, is this responsive? And is it respectful? And, and uh, is it? Doing the job it should. Is it in the tone that I would use?
2: Sure. And yeah. then,
1: so sign a lot. And then it was packed with meetings. Meetings uh, as a as a leader, I think if you have a group of people who work directly for you, you should as you should have regular meetings with them. And some leaders will say, no, I have an open door policy. So Bill, if you wanna come and see me, Mary, if you wanna come and see me. You might be my direct reports, but my door's open all the time. Come and see me. Well, people don't. Of
0: course they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Don't. So you have to have a, a periodic meeting with Bill and with Mary. Would you do and, those as like, as like one-on-one meetings then? Or do you do as a cabinet? Right, or? Okay. Both. Both. We
1: had, uh, I had what I called the executive committee, which was the uh, lieutenant governor, the chief financial officer for the state, uh, the chief of staff the state and then several of the cabinet members that i thought were particularly good leaders so i had either five or six or seven okay. members of the executive committee and i would meet one-on-one with them every week for a half hour okay and then we would meet as a group every week for okay. about an hour to two hours depending upon how uh, how busy we were and then uh the rest of the day was generally filled with meetings that were topic driven. So, if, it was, if there was something going on, uh, particularly uh, driven by constituents, someone wants to come in and talk about highway funding, or, or we've got an issue, we've got coronavirus, yeah. or we've got, uh, in my term of office, we had a measles outbreak, we had Ebola. Uh, threatening the united states including people from countries that had ebola visiting south dakota how do you deal with those people how do you track them how do you be sure they aren't bringing ebola with them uh, things like that so you yeah. have media yeah. media, And that fills the day and then yeah part of being a leader is being present uh in those you know geographic areas sure being around state so several times a week i'd be out in other areas of the state i think it's important you don't lead from the high castle and never come out and see people that have elected you your yep. bosses better go see your bosses a little bit
0: <laughs> yeah everybody's got a boss right yeah even the governor um, yeah and uh you touched on 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 that point that I wanted to go to. So we'll talk about it. Uh, crisis, leading during crisis. You had some, we have a, a big one right now. Maybe you're glad to be doing landscaping right now, or I don't know, do you, do you wish you were there <laughs> tackling this? I mean, this is, a, this is a big one. What have you learned through all leaders get forged through crisis? Well,
1: first of all, and I touched on it once, you have to be present. Mm-hmm. People who are worried about something, they want to see you. Yep. And, they, uh, and you can't be just present by telephone or by television. You've got to be physically present occasionally. I mean, you're not there all the times in the trenches, but you need to be out and about. So if there's a tornado uh, in West Indian Springs, I Definitely needed to go there because I know that the community wanted, to, wanted me to be there. They, A, wanted me to see with my own eyes, And they wanted to be reassured by my presence that I knew they were in trouble and that I was there to help and the state was there to help. Sure. So you need to be physically present um, and be seen. And then you also need to communicate. And now there again, part of it is being seen and communicating on the spot, but also communicate by telephone and television So when we had the Missouri River flood, for example, in my first year in office, yep. we did very much what you're seeing governors around the nation, including our governor and all, have periodic press conferences on telephone, uh, television so that uh, people who were concerned and interested could hear directly from the leader what's going on and what's changing and what's being done. Um. And then the third thing, I think, you need to be involved. You can't just be seen as present, listening, leading, communicating, but you need to be involved because through involvement, you'll learn more and make Mm -hmm. better decisions. So during the flood, I spent my whole day at the emergency operations center and on the levees and in the communities that were sandbagging And I was involved in those decisions and involved in those meetings, even though they weren't uh, requiring my decisions or my involvement. It just helped me to understand better. And I know I contributed in ways that people wouldn't have seen or known, but again, it made me a better leader because I was involved. So be present and be seen, communicate, and then be involved in the crisis.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm curious on that second one, when you go to, say, Westing Springs, and you you look someone in the eye who's just lost their home and and their livelihood, their life's been turned upside down. What do you say to those people? How do you manage, you know, especially right now, science and fact, and, and, you know, telling the direct hard truth, but also trying to be comforting and and be present and and show them that there's hope and there's light at the end of the tunnel how do you how do you what do you say to someone like that who's just been through a moment like that well i think you just need to be empathetic with the person and and um,
1: be a listener you have to let them tell you and then reflect back to them what you've heard them say oh john so you just lost your house. Oh my gosh. And you lived there for 30 years. Oh my gosh. And it's where you grew up and gosh, you reflect back and then yeah. demonstrate that you can feel their, their concern and their worry and their despair. And then, uh, when you communicate, it's more, I was talking more about communicating to the
2: community. Yeah. No having, right.
1: mm-hmm. a Getting people around, okay, at 9 o'clock tomorrow, we're going to have a meeting, and I'm going to speak, the mayor's going to speak, the fire chief is going to speak, and everybody's going to give information that may be of use to you, uh, either to help you uh, in your day or to inform you Mm -hmm. about information that we have
0: gained and you may wish to know. Who's your Mount Rushmore of leaders? Who, who, who inspired you? They could, they could be people you know, people you don't know, living, dead. Who are your leaders that, that helped uh, form who you are today?
1: Well, I think uh, living, a couple of living leaders, or well, I guess one is not living, but one was living during my years around here. Uh, Dave Loving was his name. and He was the executive director of Children's Home Society. Okay about 20 years, I think, let's see, yeah, almost 20 years, and uh, he uh, recruited me to come work at Children's Home Society.
0: Uh, you were a banker he, before, right?
1: I was a banker, yes, and really yeah. it was quite a different career, and yeah. I would have never thought about that as a career path for me. Uh, in fact, I struggled with it because I had been trained as a lawyer and I was working in, in the bank trust department. So I was applying my legal training and, and uh, then here was this guy coming and I was on their board. That's how he okay. knew me, a volunteer board member. And here he was saying, hey, I need somebody to lead our foundation. And uh, do you know anybody, he said. And I thought and thought, I said, well, gosh, nobody comes to mind. He said, well, how about you? So it was just a a ruse, you know.
0: <laughs> he tricked it, yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, so I interviewed for the job, and then I turned it down after they oh. offered. I said, no, I got a good job at the bank, and I got a you know, um, good future there. They, I'm a vice president now, and sure. Lynn and I Young children, and of course, some of my experience in the nonprofit world where it was with other nonprofits who were just living on a string and and day to day. Yeah. So, for gosh, we got all these kids, and are you <laughs> going to have health insurance? Or are you going to have a job? So I turned him yeah. and then I regretted it afterwards, and I went back to him. By that time, he found someone else who was quite good. And that person took the job and I said, Dave, I made a mistake. I, I was thinking more about myself and what matters to me are some of the things you're doing and I want a, I want a second chance if the opportunity ever comes up. And here's one thing he, I, he taught me. He had decided he wanted me in the organization and he said, we will create a job for you. And I have done that several times now since then, where I found somebody, I thought, wow, they'd be great in this organization. I'm going to see if I can get them to come work for us, and I'm going to make a job yeah. if I have to. Create a job so that even if the, I don't have the job opening that is a best fit, I'll make something until that job opening comes along.
2: Yeah.
1: So that's one thing he taught me. But he. He taught me a lot of things along the way and recruited me and was my mentor for, gosh, 15 years at Children's Home Society. And then when he retired, I took his job. Got it. And uh, so that's one. Another one is Jeff Erickson. Jeff is living. Jeff's a retired bank president from Great Western Bank. He was very helpful to me as I was running helped me understand how to raise money. He was interested in political life, never was in politics himself, but helped Mike Rounds, Mm -hmm. uh, helped his friends with John Thune. and He uh, helped me raise money. But then it just happened that when I got elected as governor, he had just retired as president of Great Western Bank. And... I think people have this vision that, oh, you work, work campaign, you're 24-7, you're, you're making your way around seeking votes, and then you get elected, and then you say, oh, I'm going to take <laughs> a rep now because I don't take office for two months. Well, no, that's when you're really scrambling because you've got to hire a cabinet, you've got to hire a staff, you've got to create a budget, you've got to turn your political uh, promises into legislation. And proposals like for legislation, and uh, so Jeff Erickson came to Pier, moved into a motel, and led my transition. Led my transition two months, and then since then, I've just seen him uh, take a minority ownership position in a bank and become an important leader of the bank. I saw him become involved with a food company and. Very quickly became chairman of the board of the food company. And this is a national scale company, wow. not a local. And uh, he's just uh, amazing, an amazing guy. So smart. And uh, um, I just uh, admire him. He's a great leader. Yeah, I
0: Very think there great. are some, some people who clearly are such good leaders. It doesn't matter what they do, right? They just rise to the top, right. it doesn't matter, yeah, it doesn't matter of think, the occupation.
1: Who would think a banker... Could lead a political transition team and then a food company. It's just you know such a, a dis, disparate group of things, and yeah, a leader's a leader, and he, he was very good. Helped me too yeah. organize the cabinet and organize the meetings. Uh, yeah, very good. So that's two. Then two other ones, and this is kind of a uh, an obvious one, I guess. Abraham Lincoln, I think, mm-hmm. deserves to be on Mount Rushmore. I read uh, Doris uh, Kearns' yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, book about the team of rivals and how he took his unlikely nomination, became the nominee of the uh, Republican Party and became the president, and then took his rivals and put them on his team. All these political opponents that presumably you... Develop some enmity toward, and then you decide, no, I'm going to make him my team, and mm-hmm. that was pretty impressive. But then, of course, keeping the country together during the Civil War and uh, the Emancipation Proclamation—you uh, know—all these things that were so important to our country, he he did, and so he deserves to be on Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And then the other guy also is on Mount Rushmore is Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. The thing that he did that really uh, impresses me is he recognized that in this world, even back then, the world was changing and we were modifying and changing the earth so much, so fast, that uh, there were wild places in the world that should be preserved and that he did preserve. So his conservation ethic. really resonates with me, and I, I'm impressed by that.
0: Yeah, he was a big fan of the Dakotas. He'd come out here a lot. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. That's a good list. And two of them, of course, as you said, are on um, uh, Rushmore. I'm sure you got to spend a lot of time out there when you were governor. A lot. Yeah. Um, that's a great list. Uh, one that you, you touched on that there with with Lincoln and a team of rivals. One the question I wanted to make sure we got to was because i struggle with this i think sometimes uh, as ceo of a company you know you got to you got to bring along the next generation of leaders and but when do you decide especially in politics when do you decide that i'm going to go i'm going to disagree with my team or say your political party because this one i'm going to dig my heels in and i'm not willing to compromise on but sometimes you do have to sort of maybe let one go to either earn a little bit of trust or credit or decide I'm going to, you know, this one's not worth fighting for. I'm going to fight for a different issue or topic. How do you balance that uh, sort of that give and take as a leader? Yeah, I think you have to
1: judge the, the relative importance of the various decisions. And there are some, as you say, they're not, worthing, they're not worth spending your political capital on. Yep. You'll know, make any enemies. Uh, you might not win. And at the end of the day, you've expended that capital in a fruitless effort. So there, you just have to judge, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Then there are others that in the grand scheme of things, you think, well, no, this is important enough that I have to try. And uh, you have to, again, come to the calculus that you could win, that there's a, a, a fair chance that you could win. And if it's important, you just have to dig your heels in and go after it. So I, I can't really describe the process better than that. Yeah, that But it does recognize, as you said, there are there are people who tilt that windmills all the time, and I shake my head, and I think, why do you do that? You're just wasting your time, and you might feel good emotionally. I think a lot of people – that's why I'd say – emotional maturity is an important yeah. attribute of a leader because so many people let their emotions carry them into doing things that an outsider would look in and say, you are crazy to fight that battle. You are crazy to make that enemy when it does, you no good. I, I look at people who uh, make political decisions personal Mm-hmm. And they personalize their opponent and they call names. And I think to myself, my God, that might be emotionally satisfying, but tomorrow you might need John's vote on a wholly different bill. And is John going to support you now after you called him those names? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's not worth uh, it. No. So you have to make that judgment and decide what's worth a fight and what's not that important,
0: yeah, so as you think about that and maybe reflect on your time uh, in office is is there one decision that sticks out as maybe the hardest decision you had to make, or one that you made where you maybe went against the, the your team your team of uh, rivals or your 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 partners
1: uh, Well, uh there were a couple you know going uh trying to raise teacher pay and raising taxes. You know, when I ran the first time, I promised not to raise taxes. And I kept that promise during my yep. first four years. Uh, my second four years, I had not made that promise. And uh, whether it was raising taxes for teacher pay or uh, another area where we raised taxes to uh, increase highway funding, I thought, you know, we really need to do those things. And I was unwilling, there were too many, I'd seen too many politicians who were happy to spend, but unwilling to create the revenue. And so they would just borrow money. And that is, that's a coward's way of addressing a problem. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to raise taxes or propose it. And in both cases, it was really quite close. We, uh, one by one or two votes in both cases. That's the process.
0: And I'm sure those are things you look back and are probably really proud of, right? Those hard yeah. ones that you.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I'm a little bit self aware in that way. I think to myself, and this was true in children's home society days, you would work and work and work and strategize and meet <laughs> and, uh, have all these, um, efforts that culminate in say a hundred thousand dollar gift which is a a significant gift yeah and then two weeks later you get a different one hundred thousand dollar gift that just came out of the blue well the first one was much more satisfying (laughs) much more exciting because you did all the work to create it so when you have to work really hard to accomplish something Uh, when you are successful it means a lot and there might be something just as uh, just as significant but if you haven't had to work hard at it it just
0: doesn't feel quite as fulfilling. Yeah Yeah, we talk about that at Lemonley we say we have to celebrate our wins you know I think we're you talked about work ethic South Dakotans we like to just put our head down and just do the job but rarely do we do we step back and look up and actually say hey nice work you know we really did a good job on that and actually celebrate those wins. Yes. Yes. Well, I got a couple quick, like rapid fire ones, and then we'll wrap up. Um, you mentioned you mentioned reading. What book are you reading right now? Are you? A well, I, just, I just finished uh, this Tender Land,
1: and I am embarrassed to say I can't remember the author. It's a guy from Minnesota, and it's very interesting to me because there are, there are a number of parallels with my life or with this area. It's set in Minnesota. It's about um, the. It's set in the Depression years.
2: Okay.
1: And, uh, it talks about Sioux Falls. It mentions Mankato. Mentions Saint Paul. Uh, the chief, uh, the primary uh, character in the novel, had a mother who was deaf, as was my mother, yep. Yep. and so uh, that person knew sign language, and so did I. Uh, so my sister saw the book and she recommended it. And then Linda read it. And then Linda said, oh, you should read it too. And okay. So I stayed up until midnight, night before last reading it.
0: Oh, wow. So it was a page turner. Very good. Yeah. I know you tipped me off. And I know we both know. We both worked with somebody, a uh, mutual friend, Ryan. He told me about this, about you. And I know I just saw it too. How many Diet Mountain Dews do you drink a day? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, probably
0: four, five. Okay. So that's kind of your, that's your, your, i bu-
1: Probably an average of four or five.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, what's the, what's the best perk? I mean, being a leader is hard. We've talked about some of the parts. What's the best perk of being a governor that maybe most of us wouldn't know something that comes with it. That's uh, maybe, maybe something that you're missing nowadays. Uh,
1: well, one perk I think people are aware of is the state plane. Okay. You know, when you're the governor of a state as big geographically as South Dakota is, you cannot be present in the communities where you must be without a plan. Otherwise, you, you spend the whole day de- driving. Yeah, you drive, you, know, you drive three hours to Brookings, and then you spend an hour, and then you drive three hours to get back home, and there's seven hours of your day. That's your day, yeah. You eat lunch, and there's the, there's the rest, so... <laughs> So if you've got an eight-hour day, you just can't do it without playing. And and uh, that was such a privilege. And uh, it was so fast, and the pilots really are excellent. So that was a perk. I'll say one other perk that was uh nice is the governor's mansion. It's just such a beautiful home. It's it's not very energy efficient, I would say. And <laughs> in some in some rooms it was they were. They're not very warm in the winter, I'll say that. It, okay. It's designed, it's more uh, art than shelter in some sure. ways. But, A um, hosting. You can host people, and Linda's got uh, 12, she's one of 12 kids okay. in her family. So we were able to host Thanksgiving one year at the Governor's Mansion, and everybody fit.
0: That's great. <laughs> Um, Okay, we talked about, I know you have six soon-to-be-seven grandkids. You have three kids of your own. Uh, I'm a father of two little girls. What's a piece of advice that you used to always give your kids growing up, something that you'd always tell them? Oh,
1: golly. I should be able to answer that quickly. I, I even wrote things out for my daughter, Sarah. She said, Dad, write down all the things that were important as a parent um oh uh we would always say to our kids when they complained or cried about something that they wanted i would say oh now i can't do it because what will that teach you if i give in now that crying gets your way and i can't teach that that would be a bad lesson so now you've cried now i can't do it so it became their fault that they couldn't have that candy or couldn't have that toy. Couldn't go outside when they needed to do their homework. And uh, the other thing was always read before uh, bedtime. Always read before bedtime. And then in the end, as our kids learned to read themselves, it became a privilege. Okay, Johnny, you can go to bed now um, and read for a half hour if you want to. Uh, I forget how we. It was kind of a.
0: a you can stay false up story. if they if they read, yeah, or maybe yeah. go to bed if they don't read.
1: If you yeah, if you go to bed right now, you can read for a half hour in bed. If you go to bed right now, if you wait five minutes, then you can't read. And so we really got two things out of it: we got them to bed on time, and we got them to read. And of course, you want your kids to read again and again because it develops that skill. Yeah. So our kids would go to bed and read every night and they're That's all
0: yeah you can use that on your grandkids now um yeah. and then the last one and do you have a quote or uh, what's your favorite quote about leadership or something that someone said that, that maybe you had on your desk or that you put on a wall oh calvin coolidge okay. calvin
1: coolidge, and i might not be able to say it exactly uh said nothing takes the place of persistence talent will not uh Unrewarded talent is uh, almost a proverb. And now we're going to mix around. Uh, genius will not. The world is full of unrewarded genius. Hmm. And education will not. Uh, the world is full of educated derelicts. Hmm. Uh, persistence and, and determination are omnipotent. So I guess the point was genius and talent and uh, education are certainly uh, important elements along the road to success, but none of them are any good if you don't have persistence and determination. You got to have the have the determination to keep working and working and working at something till you get it done.
0: Yeah, well, I think from what I know about your leadership style and certainly your time as governor, that that describes you very well. And so, uh, oh, well, thank. you. Thanks so much for your time today. This was great to talk to such, a, such an amazing leader, to learn a little bit more about your story and some of the people that motivated and inspired you. So thank you so much, Governor, for the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for
1: having me. I enjoyed it very much, John.
0: All right. Well, you take care. Say hi to Linda and, and be well. Be safe.
2: Okay. Bye-bye.